Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm very excited about the guest that we have because he is someone that has been on both sides of the table as an investor and now as an entrepreneur. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Eyal Lipschitz. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So originally born in the U.S., in New York City, but, uh, you know, you end up, you know, in the army in, in Israel. So how did this happen and how was life growing up for you? Well, uh, my parents are Israeli. Um, they met uh, in the U.S. and I was born, as you said, in New York. Uh, and then they had a bit of back and forth from the U.S. to Israel. Uh, I did go to elementary school and middle school in the beginning of that in, in the U.S. We lived in New Jersey at the time. Uh, but then my parents got divorced and we moved back to Israel when I was about 13. Uh, in Israel, uh, military service is compulsory. So um, I joined uh, the military like uh, most of my um, high school peers. Uh, I elected to go to a combat unit, which is, you know, it's a very good, um, you know, it, it certainly shapes your personality. And what did you learn from being in the in the army? Uh, that you can endure a lot more than you think. Because I mean, it's you were there for over three years. I mean, that that's a significant amount of time. Uh, you know, military in Israel is is interesting. You go in as a teenager. You're 18 years old. You're hanging out with your friends a moment before, and then you join the military. And the military is very different. Um, there is no "I don't want to do this." There are orders. You go to jail if you don't follow orders, uh, and it certainly toughens you out. Uh, toughens you up, and it gives you a lot of perspective. It gives you perspective around, um, you know, what you can and can't do. It, it certainly, you know, toughens you up mentally as well as physically. It really teaches you about kind of teamwork. Um, you know, the um, kind of saying that you know we're all under the gurney, you know, holding it up, right? It's um, you know, it, it is really true in the military. So it, it certainly is. Um, one that is um, good lessons in the beginning of your adult life that you carry with you, uh, certainly as an Israeli, and, and I think um, in other places as well. And how did you develop the love for engineering and, and solving big problems? So engineering to me, um, you know, 
not going to claim it was a very um, sort of deep-rooted love for technology that brought me there. Um, I, to be honest, I bought my first computer when I was 21. <laughs> so I'm certainly not one of those that were kind of geeks as, as, as children uh, and, and learned to code. Like my co-founder learned to code when he was like 13. That, that certainly wasn't me. I used to... I used to go to the beach when I was, um, you know, I surfed when I was a teenager. So um, to me, um, it, it came out more through curiosity. I completed uh, my military service around the year 2000. Uh, back then, you know, technology was buzzing. It was the dot-com era. And everybody was going and studying um, engineering or computing, computer science. And so I, I really had no idea what it would be, but I thought it would be, you know, I guess there's so much noise around it. I guess uh, there's something to it. Let's give it a shot. So, you know, a little bit more random. And and you grew up, you know, your your father and your grandfather, they were both uh, businessmen. I mean, they, they developed their own businesses. So yep. so how was for you growing up and, and seeing your dad and, and then also your, your grandfather, like really building businesses and, 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 and really, you know, scaling them? Like, like what was that for you? So both of them were small business owners, although small business owners don't usually refer to their businesses as small businesses. They just refer to it as my business. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Uh, my grandfather owned um, uh, kind of a lighting electricity store uh, for about 40 years. And then my dad um, had a physical therapy clinic in the Upper East Side in New York for you know, three decades. And, um, you know, to me... Um, you know, thinking about, I didn't, I wasn't at a time where my grandfather, you know, was running his business. He, he already sold it by then. He was already retired. But uh, I did grow up with my dad running his business. And I remember spending my time, um, you know, in his business. And it was kind of funny. I remember him as like being the boss. He had like a small, small company, small business with, with five, six employees. But he was, he was kind of king of his domain, you know? So I saw... I saw the attractiveness of it. He was he was running it, um, and I think he enjoyed he enjoyed that freedom, you know, to really kind of be, um, you know, the owner um, and, and, and driving that. And, and uh, but um, at the same time, it it came with a lot of stress. And I saw times where where he was more stressed because either there were issues with employees or um, or there were issues with cash flow. And so you know, I saw it kind of very, very from, from, from nearby, you know, um, you know, close up. Uh, and, and as a child, right, as a child, you don't always understand or are able to interpret what you see. But over time, as I grew up, I, I, I more, I got more of a sense of what was really going on. And, um, and yeah, it gave me a real appreciate appreciation for both the rewards, but also the challenging of running a small business. And would you say that there was probably a time, you know, growing up where you were exposed to all these same, you know, business environment where, where you probably told yourself one day I will have my own business? So it's interesting. I never, I never thought I would. It's not, there are some folks, you know, some people that have, you know, from, from the moment they're born or very early on in their career, they know they want to be an entrepreneur. It wasn't the case for me. It's, it's not that it's not like I've seen it up close, maybe because I've seen the challenges with it. It wasn't something that I was automatically drawn to. It wasn't like I, I um, 
I graduated from college and I thought to myself, oh, the first thing I want to do is become an entrepreneur. Actually, if you look at my career, I've followed a pretty safe path. I went to a good university. I studied engineering. Then I went to work for a large company. Then I went to a good graduate uh, school, good university. Then I went to work for, for a well-known consulting firm. Then I went to work for a venture firm. And so up until I started Bluevine, I've actually not taken that much risk. And with entrepreneurship or with starting a business, there's just a lot of risk. I've actually taken a pretty safe path until that point. But something in me, um, you know, it started, I've started getting the itch for that, um, you know, for that entrepreneurship bug. And um, that happened uh, before I started Bluevine, you know, um, yeah. but it, was, it wasn't something that was with me throughout my life. And, you know, talking about that safe path, I mean, it's it's really interesting because most of the founders that that I interview that are like really successful, they they have like very clear paths that really form the the way of thinking about resolving problems or about tackling certain situations. You know, and, and most of these people either come from investment banking, uh, consulting, uh, VC. You know, in this case, you actually have two of those paths. So I guess that makes you a Swiss Army knife. So, so I guess you know, like going into this uh, kind of like past uh, experience, uh, and and I want to just hone in here. I mean, you you worked at McKinsey, and then you worked at Greylock. Let's talk about McKinsey. Like, what did you learn from your time being at McKinsey? McKinsey is really a great firm to work at. Uh, certainly after business school, it's a little bit like an extension of business school. You deal with a whole set of different um, you know, business issues and you work on solving them. Um, you consult for typically large companies and you help them th think through um, various strategic or operational issues. And um, the firm is great. There are really smart people working there that you get to work with side by side and you tackle um, typically very important issues. So when companies hire McKinsey to help them think through um, things, those are usually things that are at the top of the list, things that are on the, the mind of the CEO or, or senior executives. And you get to um, really um, kind of problem solve around these things and come up with, with solutions. Um, and you also get to, you know, by working with many types of companies and potentially industries, you get to experience many of them. So you see many types of, of these problems that potentially in companies they don't happen every day. They come, you know, once in a while. But you, working in this capacity, you work with company after company. And so the majority of your work is thinking about really high-level, super important, super strategic things. Um, so it's a great time. It's a great opportunity um, to generally uh, kind of hone your problem-solving and broader business skills. Got it. Got it. So one of the things that... that you know, it's it's a tough part, you know, really in the venture world is getting into BC, especially if you are an outsider, you know, you're not a founder that has gone through the full cycle or perhaps, you know, like, you know, someone. So you literally went from McKinsey, you made the jump to Greylock, you know, one of the most respected VC firms, you know, for the folks that are listening, you know, like people like Reid Hoffman, you know, involved in the firm. You actually invested, I believe, over a hundred million with the firm. You were part of the investment team. But I guess, first and foremost, how the hell did you get your foot in the door? Um, so um, I joined the Israeli 
um, UK office of Greylock. And since then, they've spun out. Uh, but at the time, they had a pool of capital for that part of the world. And um, they were looking for an associate slash principal. I think I, I fit I fit the description of what they were looking for. You know, um, they were looking for somebody with a strong technical background um, and a business education and potentially consulting experience. So I did fit the mold of what they were looking for. That didn't mean that there wasn't a lot of competition um, for that role. Um, I've heard there were about, you know, 100 or more candidates that were interviewing for that one role. So it certainly was a coveted position. Um, and I think, you know, why did I get it? Who knows? I think maybe I had good chemistry with them. I, I probably performed okay in the interviews. Some of it is, I don't, I don't know if it's um, 100% objective. Part of it is, it is just kind of the level of chemistry that I have and the dynamic that I had in the interviews. And, uh, you know, they gave me an offer. So it was um, a great opportunity and I jumped on it. Really cool. So what, what kind of stuff were you doing there? I mean, were you like uh, mainly sourcing and, and helping the investment team on, on deciding on wh which companies to invest in or, or what kind of work were you doing? I was um, the only non-partner investment professional at the time until slightly a bit later when we hired an analyst that reported to me. And, um, you know, I did a bunch of things because uh, the partnership invested across multiple industries, across multiple geographies, both in, you know, across continental and Europe, but also in, in the UK and in Israel. Um, so, you know, had the opportunity uh, to see a lot of potential investments um, in different industries, in different stages. And um, um, it was just great. You know, it's looking from the outside in and um, engaging with really, really smart entrepreneurs that are doing very exciting things. Um, I don't remember the number of investments um, that I was part of, but pretty much every investment at the time. And it was a really good period because it was 2010 to 13, just coming out of the recession. Um, the fund had just raised um, a new fund. So there was a lot of capital to deploy. Um, and certainly more than um, 20 investments when, that, when I was there at the time um, and several follow-ons. Uh, so really good time. And I learned a lot. And the folks that I was working with were just amazing. And I learned a ton from them. So then, so then talking about the investments and, and the process, and especially for the folks that are listening and, you know, many of the folks listening probably are either in the process of fundraising or, or thinking about fundraising when a firm, let's say like Greylock decides to, to finally place a bet, you know, let's say in a company and they say, okay, we're going to put, you know, this amount of money in, in this business. Mm -hmm. What is the process that happens, you know, all the way, you know, like from like the moment that they, you know let's say the partners decide to invest in, in that specific domain, like what does the process look like? There's a long process leading up to it. Um, and long is relative, but um, when they actually decide to invest in a company, um, the entrepreneurs first need to decide if they're taking that offer. So right. it's not that every offer that the firm uh, wants to you know, give an entrepreneur, the entrepreneur will take it. And increasingly today, it is a competitive market. There is a lot of um, competition for good for good investments, and um, good companies get multiple offers from investors. So part of it is to um, negotiate the offer, and if it is a company that you as an investor 
really want to invest in, you need to convince them to to take your offer. So there's kind of that dance that goes on um, um, when, and, and that part is is kind of the term sheet stage. The VC provides a term sheet to the entrepreneur, and then there's negotiation on it. Um, after after the um, offer is accepted, meaning the you know both the firm and the entrepreneur sign the term sheet, then I'd say it's pretty. Uh, it's more technical. Usually, there's legal due diligence, uh, which is more confirmatory. Um, at that point, the VC typically does not do any more diligence. They do all their business diligence um, upfront. So when they offer a term sheet, they they want to invest. This is more you know getting it buttoned up from a legal perspective afterwards. Um, and so then there's usually another couple of weeks of legal diligence, and then when that's done. Um, you know, the money goes through, <laughs> so, right. uh, which is nice. So, um, yeah, that's the process. I'm happy to get into anything specific. Yeah. So I guess now that you're looking at it from the founder's perspective, and especially mm-hmm. when we have these founders, um, you know, listening, I mean, you have three years as an insider, as a VC. So now that you're a founder, you know, mm-hmm. the don'ts and the, and, and the do's now when, when you're raising <laughs> capital. So I guess for the people that are listening, what are the top three tips that you would give them on fundraising? So one. Um, Prepare. Um, fundraising requires upfront preparation. You want to come at it with your best foot forward. That means putting together the story that best reflects your company um, and putting, you know, whether it's presentation or pitch uh, or, you know, whatever material. And it changes from round to round, meaning uh, when you're an earlier stage company, the things you need to prepare are different than you need to prepare when you're later stage. Uh, but in either case, being prepared when you come into this is a good idea. Um, the second thing is um, leaving enough time. Um, you don't want to fundraise with your back against the wall. Entrepreneurs, you know, um, in fast-growing companies, um, typically burn cash. Um, so you know that's why they need to raise capital. But you don't want to be in a position where you're really close to the end such that you're frantic you want to give yourself enough time and typically you know you want more time the more later stage it is but a good rule of thumb you know, around you know at least around six months um, and then the final thing is um, there's a little bit of a dating game in in finding an investor um, the fact that you have a really great company doesn't mean mean it's going to be right for every investor so there's going to be a matter of also fit um, what the thesis of the investor is, what um, industries they're looking for, what stage they're looking for. So there needs to be a fit. Um, and so I would encourage entrepreneurs to, uh, when they go out fundraising, to seek the investors and um, to focus on the ones that are relevant for them. And there's more nuance there. Like, um, are they really going to invest in, in a company in this space and other things? But um, it could be a very tedious process if you really go super wide as an entrepreneur and meet every single investor out there because investors their work is to meet entrepreneurs they generally their threshold for meeting interesting entrepreneurs is quite low uh but you as an entrepreneur uh, yes as a ceo definitely one of your roles is to raise capital but you also have another job which is running the company and fundraising is distracting. So you don't want to make it, you want to make that, that process as efficient as you can. And part of that is being selective and thoughtful about the investors you want to meet. 
Got it. Very, very powerful there, uh, Yael. So, so I guess the uh, the last question here to close the loop on on Greylock, and and now we can you know talk about your journey as a founder is what you were alluding to great companies before the the fact that great companies would receive multiple offers. So, what does a great company look like? The very subjective um, you know response there. Um, Great companies in the eyes of the of the investor, and investors right. have their perception of what is a great company. Uh, I can give you the more generic bullet points here. Uh, usually, especially when we're talking about venture investors, they're looking for growth. Okay, so companies that are growing are more exciting. Then it's a matter of um, certainly at, at later stages, unit economics is the primary unit of of economics here. Does it work or it doesn't work? Are you when you're uh, you know acquiring a customer? Are you actually generating more or less, um, you know, profit uh, than you're actually spending to acquire them, and in what multiples? Um, so those are the things that people look at, and then after that, it becomes things around, you know, um, like the industry. What is the upside here? The market. The market is always, um, you know, important because uh, people look at it as an indication of how big the outcome could be. But um, it could be a little bit deceiving because in some cases, markets are formed, okay? Like the investors that invested in Airbnb, um, you know, at that time, there was no market, right? They were, they were defining a market. So uh, the size of the market, the ultimate size of the market is important, but that is something that could be a little bit deceiving because sometimes like the, the company is actually defining their own market and over time, it will actually be very large. Um, and then again, um, there are other things which are, um, more subjective um, investors have different thesis around business models and what is interesting and what is not interesting. Uh, and obviously, the team is important. So um, investors are investing in a company, uh, but they are really investing in the leadership um, that is leading the company and first and foremost in the entrepreneurs. And that becomes more important in the earliest stages of the company. It's always important, but in the beginning, you know, especially in the seed stage or the early stages, um, everything is kind of being built. And so the investor is making an explicit bet here that the, um, that the entrepreneurs, that the founders will be able to figure it out, even if there's going to be bumps in the road. Uh, and they'll be able to execute on that vision. So it, it's very important, and they're making that type of bet. So they want to make sure um, that they truly believe in that founders uh, and the leadership of that company. So, so when you're thinking about teams here, Yael, uh, and and founders, is there like a common trait that these founders that ultimately go out and build something really meaningful? Is there like a common trait that they have? I can't speak for all investors. I, I can tell you some things uh, yeah, that. You know, I've seen and I've heard. Um, so generally, um, investors like to invest in, um, in 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 teams that are in a, in a category. I mean, there's a title they're strong. Now, what, what does strong mean? Okay, a um, couple of attributes that I think um, you know most investors look at is is this um, you know are are they charismatic? Are they good salespeople? And and part of that reason is. Um, especially as a CEO, you're always selling. You're selling to investors, you're selling to employees, you're selling to your partners, you're selling to your customers. And so your ability to communicate and get other people excited about what you're doing, about your vision is really important. And so that is something that an investor look at, looks at. Are you able to really um, convince others 
in that what you're doing matters. So that is something that they look at. Obviously, they look at just general intelligence. I'd say another thing is like tenacity uh, and perseverance. It's not an easy journey. And so, you know, I think from investors that I've worked with, they really look at the personality of the founders. Are these going to be ones that are able to kind of tough it out uh, and make the tough decisions when they need to? Making easy decisions are easy. Making hard decisions, you know, and I know this is kind of a very, a very uh, right. Kind of, uh, right, but making hard decisions is hard. So they want to see that this is an entrepreneur that's able to make the hard right decisions when they need to. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. The hard decisions are definitely hard. They yell. So, um, so let's let's talk about your your entrepreneurial journey then. So, so how did you come up with the idea of Bluevine? How did this come across your head, and and why do you decide to leave the safe, comfortable path that you were on to, <laughs> to really complicate your life like this? <laughs> um, it's been it's been the best decision of my life, by the way, so far. So just kind of getting that that out. Um, working in venture. Um, one of the areas that we were interested in uh, when I was um, at Rehlock Israel was um, financial services. And specifically, we were looking uh, quite a bit at financing companies and the general theme of financing as a service becoming an online one um, was certainly happening. And it's one that I believed in. And the reason is whether you are a small business or a consumer, consuming uh, or or requesting financing online um, is a better experience than needing to go to a physical location and uh, fill out a mountain of paperwork in waiting three weeks rather than sitting in front of a computer, clicking a few buttons and getting an instant response. Um, put aside whether the business model is a sound one or not, but just from the customer experience, it just makes a whole lot of sense. And innovation around customer acquisition and um, data science and in capital markets have made that business model become a viable one. Uh, and we saw many companies starting during that time, whether it was Lending Club or others that were delivering this type of service, um, either to consumers or to small businesses. And um, my idea was, okay, let's see if there are forms of financing that are in demand but have not yet made that transition. They're only available as offline services. Can we find something like that and make it an online service? And at the time, I learned about invoice factoring, which is a form of commercial financing, a form of business financing. And um, I learned about that this is a service that many small businesses use, and it has a lot of value to them. But the experience itself um, is very clunky, it's very offline and paper-based. And I thought to myself, okay, let's take a page of what others have done in generally um, other areas within financing, and let's apply it here. Okay, let's see how we make factoring an online product. That was the initial uh, thesis looking from the outside in. It has substantially evolved as we, um, you know, as we learned our customers and we understood what the real pain points in the market. But at the time, looking from the outside in as an investor, analytically, um, that got me excited. Okay, okay. There's an opportunity here to take this form of financing, which has inherent demand. Uh, it serves a real purpose, but it's done in a very archaic way. Let's modernize it. Okay, let's take a page uh, from you know how others have been looking at this market, but doing it in a different area. So that was the initial idea, and that's where we that's where we started. 
So then what was the validation and, and, and before that, before that, how did you meet the founding team? The founding team I met through introductions. Uh, the benefit of working in, in venture is um, you're pretty well connected. And so, and then you, you also have good ears to the market to know who are, who are people who are considered strong. Um, and so I, I benefited from that. I got introduced to my co-founder uh, and CTO, Nier, uh, through a mutual friend. Uh, he was at the time a CTO of another company. Uh, and he was about to leave and, you know, basically like a blind de- date we met, we talked and there was just a click. We had a third founder, um, you know, who was uh, part of the team in the beginning. Uh, but then over time, we parted ways. Um, you know, sometimes the initial team doesn't work out for the long term, uh, yeah. but we started out as three in the beginning. So just out of curiosity and for the people that are listening and perhaps saying, thinking about starting something, any tips for how people should be structuring uh, you know, during the dating, you know, phase, like things so that if there's a fall off, you know, like everything is, you know, there is damage control that can be done. Um, I think every case is different. What I would say, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question. Uh, choosing your founders is incredibly important. It's a little bit like, um, you know, getting married. <laughs> you're, you're going on this really intense journey together and, it's it's a bumpy one, and you want to make sure that you're going um, you're going about it with um, people that you trust and people that complement your strengths and and weaknesses, and and so you have the overall kind of right team to start out with, and it's hard because like you know marriages end up in divorce too, right? Because you don't always know, um, and so there's not always kind of a long term fit. Um, part of it is because sometimes the role in the company changes over time, not because it wasn't a good fit to begin with. Um, but I think you want to spend the time, the extra time in the beginning to make sure that your co-founders are one that you really think are the right ones for you for the long term. And part of it is trying to suss out early. Um, you kind of differences in personalities um, and, um, you know, working styles, philosophies. Um, again very analogous to, to marriage. You know, if it's, if there's stuff that is not working in the dating period, you know, yeah. it's probably going to be way harder later. So you want to make sure that you're, you're tuned into, um, you know, what makes you same, what makes you different. And again, like you're different people. So, and that's important. You're bringing in different things to the table. Um, but you want to make sure that this is somebody that is compatible to you. Um, I would say that my recommendation is, to start out with no more than two or three, um, you know, founders, um, you know, I think I've seen teams that come in and that are like four or five founders. Um, you know, I, I advise against that. Um, outside of the fact that you are, you know, in terms of your ownership of the company, you're splitting it with more people. Um, you know, founders have different position in the company um, as opposed to my executive team, my leadership team, that is a very, know, strong and senior team, my co-founder has a special status. Okay. Um, even though I'm the CEO, he's my partner. Okay. And, and it becomes more challenging when the company is growing. And in the beginning you, you kind of, yeah, okay. I'll have like, you know, another three, four founders when the company is large, it becomes challenging to make that dynamic work. Um, and especially because as you grow, like the founder CEO, uh, remains his position, but one of the things that that happens as you grow as a company, you may need different 
people to fill the roles that your earlier co-founders, you know, especially you know, if you have people on the business sides of it, uh, are filling. So, you know, it kind of like, in many times, it's an obstacle later on. I think the natural part is a CEO and a CTO, especially in technology companies. Maybe a third one, if it really makes sense, and there is, you know, they're bringing in something to the table that is very rare uh, and is very defined. But otherwise, I'd probably limit it to two. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm right there with you. I think otherwise, it's just too many egos to manage, and it's just all over There's the place. So in the kitchen. Yeah, that's it. So, so El, so let me ask you this. So, what were the early days like of Bluevine? <laughs> um, trying to find the right way to describe it. Um, <laughs> A lot of chaos, I'm sure. Chaos, but yes, chaos is the right word. Um, right. I think you are you're in a point where you're trying to create something from literally at the time, literally nothing. Okay. So, um, I'd say, um, everybody is Jack of all hands, you know, all trades at the time, everybody's doing everything. Um, and, um, you're kind of scrambling to put something together and find initial, initial product market fit. Uh, so it is, it is a very exciting part of the journey. It is one where you're like, Oh, it's happening. You know, we're actually doing this. and um, it's it's incredibly exciting when you launch your product and you actually have customers use it. You're all well, I created something that is actually valuable to people, and it's a it's a it's an incredible rush. Um, so, but in the beginning, it's very frantic. And and the thing is, when you're so small in the beginning, nobody pays attention to you. So you're like scrambling to to get people to you know even have a conversation with you. In the beginning, when we started, we needed to find a bank that is willing to work with us to even open an account for us that today is like really trivial. Like if I want to go to a bank and I want to start working with them, you know, I'll, I'll have like 10 banks who will want to work with me today. But at the time it was like a bank that is willing to work with this company that just formed uh, and allow us to do what we're looking to do. So even that was not trivial. Um, so um, exciting and chaotic is, is probably, is probably uh, the right way to describe it. I hear you. And and talking about product market fit, so what ended up being the the business model of Bluevine and and what did product market fit look like? It considerably evolved. So, you know, I I would say that our product market market fit in the beginning was a limited one, but it was enough um to resonate with some segments in the market. Uh we introduced our first version, uh, online factoring in in beta form in March 2014, and then more available in June 14. And, uh, you know, we were hitting on, um, you know, a need in the market that later, as we refine our understanding of the need, we change our product. Uh, but in the beginning, we saw that there was need for um, revolving credit with small businesses, uh, that factoring could solve that need, and they weren't getting access to that type of financing in a good way elsewhere, or um, they were looking for factoring, but the proposition that we were offering, which is really more on-demand, more seamless and online, it, it really spoke to them. So we're kind of capturing um, a couple of types of demands there, but overall, um, you know, I found it fascinating that as a no-name company, people, you know, were still, you know the demand was 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 great enough such that people were willing to work with us, uh, and we did, you know, get um, you know customers over the the first six months. 
uh, several hundred customers. And so we're doing something right. Got it. And and what were some of the uh, early hires? I mean, I'm sure that perhaps there was some someone to provide some guidance with the regulatory landscape because when you're you know doing this kind of stuff, regulation is a beast. We worked mostly with external counsel. So um, again, as a startup, you are very lean in terms of your headcount and you leverage resources when you can. And for, for regulatory, um, at the time, you know, before we raised the next round, we we're really relying more on external counsel. Um, so we didn't have that in-house. Later on, we've hired a phenomenal um, general counsel and chief compliance officer, Sharon, that you know, is now running a, running a team here. But at the time, she, she joined slightly later on. Uh, we In the beginning, we hired more generalists, okay? Folks that had the ability to do multiple things, um, which means um, you know, we hired two or three folks in the U.S. that were doing marketing and biz dev and customer support and collections, all of it, okay? So there wasn't, um, you know, we weren't at a point, especially when you're in that phase of the company, where... You're, you're able to afford high specialization. This was like all, all hands on deck. You do everything. Um, and so that was the type of uh, recruiting they were doing mostly. In the beginning, people that had uh, somewhat of range and were excited to join a startup where they would be able to wear many hats. Got it. Because for, for something like this, I mean, it's, um, it's capital intensive uh, to scale a company of this nature. So how, how, how much capital have you guys raised today? To date, we raised $140 million in equity capital and over $400 million of, of debt financing. So together, you know, 500 plus. Got it. So then here, Eyal, what were some of the, because I saw, you know, obviously you were, as you were saying, like once you are in the venture world, you're connected, you know, with other VCs and so forth. So, I mean, you guys raised this Series A, you know, fairly quick, um, you know, mm -hmm. compared to when you had founded the, the business. So, so what was the... Um, the jump from financing milestone to financing milestone for you guys? So we've had several rounds. We've had um, five and a half. And uh, each time it was different. Um, in the, the first time that we raised capital, as you said, I, I basically raised it from Relic Partners Israel, uh, which they're called 83 North, and from Lightspeed Venture Partners. And... Um, there, it was not much more than a PowerPoint um, and a team. So, you know, we're going about doing and disrupting this market. Um, they believe that there's an opportunity and they really made a bet on me and my co-founders. The next round that we've raised, um, it was actually preempted by our existing investors, where um, the proof that we've shown is we've had, it's a couple of hundred customers and we were you know, financing a couple hundred thousand dollars per month. So we show that there is product market fit. We show that we're able to build here an initial business and that we're scaling it. Um, the next round, which was led by Menlo Ventures there, we were already financing something like, um, you know, eight or $9 million a month. Okay. So we, we've taken a big jump from, from the previous one. We started showing scale and we started showing unit economics. The next round, you know, we started having multi-products. And that has come about from our understanding that um, small businesses, the way they view financing is actually quite, um, you know, more 
general than what we thought. We came out with factoring, but small businesses have diverse needs and their needs change over time. And so our, our strategy has become more of a multi-product strategy across financing. Uh, and then eventually, even not just financing, around financial services, uh, that was the thesis that we continued afterwards and have begun scaling that, which has led to investors uh, making their bets on us in the subsequent rounds. Got it. So then, so then how big is uh, Bluebind today? Today we are 280 people. And um, we are, we've crossed $2 billion of financing to small businesses. So, you know, we've come quite a long way. So is it true when they say that when your business is scaling at 2x or 3x or whatever that is a year, you need to scale yourself, uh, you know, from maturing and, and transforming yourself into a better leader, you know, at the same rate? How was that for you? Hard. <laughs> So how did you do it? I try to listen and get feedback. Um, and I'm, I think I'm, I'm generally um, aware of where I'm strong and where I need to develop. And I continuously work on developing myself. Uh, so I, I think, first of all, you need to be aware you know, before you can actually do it. Um, part of it is, um, you know, Throughout the journey, certainly my role has changed. Um, in the beginning, it was like I was, you know, doing everything. I was, you know, I was literally, for example, our um, backend system, we were using Salesforce. I, I was the one that configured all of that and, um, you know, including coding. So in the beginning, it was really kind of rolling up the sleeves and, and doing everything. Then later on, uh, my role became more of like making sure that I'm hiring a strong team around me that really are. Uh, more of experts in their respective functions and letting them um, and giving them the room to operate and empowering them. And then, you know, as a company grows, this is about really about making sure that the overall company is aligned uh, and centered around the mission and vision of the company, making sure that you are maintaining the culture um, that you started out with uh, as the company scales and you, and you actually don't know everybody by name. So, you know, there's there's a lot of evolution in terms of um, you know what makes a good CEO at, at every stage or you know what you need to be doing as an entrepreneur and it's not always easy okay like uh, you know sometimes um, like my I love product um, I'm I'm really drawn to product I'm super passionate about it I wrote half of the specs in the beginning okay um, I still contribute okay but um, you know I remember there was like a moment where um, there was a product manager that was doing something and I came back and I, I kind of offered my own suggestion. Like I, I didn't, I didn't ask her. I, I literally went in and I, I provided like, this is how it should be done. Um, and she was very upset with me, uh, which is rightfully so, because um, if you're hiring great people, you need to let them do their work. And, and she kind of came to me and told me like, step back, you know, in, in, in so many words, like, let me do my work, okay? Like, if you have opinions later, um, let me do them. Let, let me provide me uh, the feedback, but, but you know, don't do the work for me. And uh, that was kind of like a, a moment of, of reflection for me is, you know, I'm probably not doing the role that I need to be doing at this stage of the company. Um, and, and there are other moments like that. Um, and again, it's not that I, I'm perfect. I make a lot of mistakes, but, um, you know, I try to, I think about those things and I think that's the first thing you need to do if you want to get better. 
Got it. So, so now that we're talking about listening and learning, you know, there's one question that I typically ask the the guests that we have on the show, and that is, um, you know, based on 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 all of the different things that you know now, you know, being on both sides of the table. I mean, you've been with with now with Bluevine for for quite a while as well. If you had the chance to to sit down and have a chat with your younger self and give yourself one piece, yeah, one piece of business advice before you were to launch a business, or let's say before you launched Blue Vine, what would that uh, piece of advice be, and why would you give that piece to yourself? Business or personal? Let's say business, and then maybe we can give a personal one too. Why not? As a bonus. <laughs> this is tough. Uh, like one sentence for business advice. Um, listen to your customers. I know it's very cliche, but that is the number one thing. Everything that we've done at Bluevine and how we expand our vision and the products that we're looking to deliver, um, a lot of it has come from our understanding of our customers, what they're saying, but also what they're not just what they're saying, what they're doing. And so I mean, listen to your customer in a broader sense. Try to understand them. Read between the lines, okay? Um, if you focus on your company and your business, around your customer needs and you're really building amazing products for them, that is a really strong recipe for building a hugely successful company. And so I can't stress that enough, primarily coming from the VC world. In VC, you're looking at things very much from the outside in uh, and you're very analytical about it uh, and, 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 and mathematical about it. Um, as, a, as a founder, you really need to grow that, uh, that muscle um, of, uh, of like really understanding and listening to your customers. Very, very powerful. I mean, listening, you know, it sounds so simple, but also, you know, it's so hard when you are in it, right? So um, I really love that, that you're saying that. So on the personal side, Eyal, you know, the bonus one, what, what would you say to your younger self? One word, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. It's a, this is a marathon. Um, it is a bumpy journey. Um, it is a hard one. Even the most successful companies, uh, it's never um, sort of a, a linear, smooth path there. Um, and it can get very hard and very dark. Um, so, you know, just breathe. And, and I try to, I try to exercise that, that, that advice, like, you know, um, you know, get perspective uh, and understand that you need this is a long road and you need to have patience and um, there's always another day. Yeah, absolutely. So, Eyal, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way to reach out and say hi? My uh, email is eyal at bluevine.com and, uh, you know, I have a LinkedIn and I have a Facebook. Um, yeah, and we have, uh, you know, that's me personally. Uh, the company website is bluevine.com, B-L-U-E-V-I-N-E.com. And, uh, you know, small business owners are... Uh, really, our mission is to uh, empower them and make them successful. So we are we are here, hundred um, percent focused on that mission. Amazing. Well, Iyal, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.